you're a sum total of the five people that you have around you, but also is just exposing yourself to people of what you mentioned. And they say one thing, you have this belief and they have this belief. You're like, well, if they have that belief there and then you start to put the two and two and then that's what you mentioned, the light bulb really goes off. And I think it's Ralph Waldo Emerson that says this is that once the mind is touched by a different idea, it can never go back to being the same. That was Sterling White. Hang around for an engaging conversation. The limited partner shares in the potentially outsized returns of a well-planned and executed investment, but as a passive investor and has the maximum leverage on their most precious asset, their time. And that is why we're here together. 90% of the millionaires out there built their net worth with real estate. However, 0% of the billionaires are hands-on managing the real estate assets because there simply isn't enough time. My name is Jake Wiley, and for the past 16 years, I've been investing in real estate, and I've learned a thing or two. But the most important lesson is how to leverage the expertise and time of others to maximize your investment potential. Welcome to the Limited Partner Podcast. All right, welcome partners. Again, this is your host, Jake Wiley. This week, I'm joined by Sterling White. So he's the principal of Sonder Investment Group. Sterling, welcome to the show. Appreciate having me on, Jake, and everyone go ahead and get ready. We're about to drop some value bombs. There it is. <laughs> well, for the benefit of the audience, Sterling, for the folks that don't know you, if you'd give us a little bit of background on who you are, maybe your path to how you got to where you're sitting today at Sonder. Yeah, so I'll take it way back, but I'll give everyone a cliff note version. So I grew up born and raised in Indianapolis, Indiana not so good parts of the city where people tend to look to get out of that as quickly as they can. Single mother, fraternal twin brother. Some people say he's as dark as Wesley Snipe. I don't think he's that dark. And there was a point in time, and this goes to show you the type of environment that I grew up in, is that I remember sitting down at the kitchen table about five or six years old, eating ramen noodles and cut up hot dogs. And then as soon as I go upstairs, a bullet comes right through the back patio where I was sitting. So that was just another day and just living in the hood. And it always sounded as if there was fireworks going on outside, but those were just gunshots. And luckily ended up getting out of that environment and really got my start in entrepreneurship where I had to figure out a way to earn money in the legal sense, because there was tons of illegal activity that was going on around me. And just fast forward, how I got started in real estate was my roommate's dad owned a construction company. He saw I had some free times during the summer. And that's how I was able to get my foot in the door as a construction laborer. And that's when I fell in love with real estate. Not so much being a laborer, but then I came across the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, started studying and saw that the wealthy didn't get that way by being laborers. They were actually investors. So started buying single families. First deal bought with no money out of pocket, scaled to 150 single families, and then transitioned to multifamily and got up to about 500 units and about three and a half, four years. Man, that's a pretty impressive story. So from construction to owning units yourself, let's talk about that transition because you don't hear that very much. I had limited partners that was invested on each of those deals. So they weren't personally owned by me. So I was doing syndications and how it worked was just started with one deal at a time. And then from there is, and I'll tell you that Buying that many single families is a lot because a lot of these were one-offs and 
lucky would get a package of two or three and then took a step back and said, okay, what model out there is more scalable? And then that's where it made the most sense to start to make that transition to multifamily. All right. So probably aren't aware of this, but the Rich Dad, Poor Dad book comes up on just about every show. So you think we are sponsoring it. So again, to my audience, we are not sponsored by Rich Dad, Poor Dad. But I would love to get your take on what was it about that book that got you to take action? Because it seems to be the catalyst for most people. And I'd love to hear your story. I would say it was the sum total of multiple books that, I mean, there was a four hour work week that I read. There was Unleashed the Power from Within by Tony Robbins. Earl Nightingale was actually a huge influence for me and he really helped me identify the limiting beliefs that I had and then replace those with more empowering ones. Because just growing up in Section 8 housing welfare is that the beliefs that were ground in me just were not the best. And the people such as my mother had the best intentions, but she was only teaching me with what she actually knew. As an example is that for the longest time, I thought that rich people in order to get to that point, they had to do unethical things to do that. And just think how bad of a belief that is, because I'm thinking as a kid is, I'm an ethical person. Why would I ever want to become rich if I have to do unethical things? So when it came to investing, Rich Dad, Poor Dad did help on that side with just shifting my mindset that, hey, I no longer want to exchange my time for money. Let me leverage, let's say, rental properties, for instance, to where I start to build passive income and wealth to where I don't actually have to physically be there and exchange my time for money and just keep on the hamster wheel. I love that story because like you're right, like the beliefs and how you grew up, right? So like neither one of my parents went to college and like my belief system was like you go get a job, stable job that has benefits and like you just work and you grind. And, you know, it's a long story of how I like unpack that one day when I was doing work. I'm a CPA by training and I was working, sitting across the table from some guys that, you know, just were blowing it out of the water. And I'm like, how did you do that? You know? And they just like told me their story and I was like, oh. Right? I'm on the wrong side of the table here. And I mean, it was Did just it sound it was, simple or those people that were across from you, was it one of those types of things that, well, if they're able to do that, then why am I not able to do that? Yeah. And I mean, that was exactly it. I'll even tell you the story real quick, because I think it, it's a fun story is that there's four guys in they were the middle of nowhere, Louisiana, and they bought an oil field services company. And they went to the bank. This was like 2006 timeframe, right? So when the banks were just giving money out for free, but they got a loan. The assets of the business were worth more than the business, like the selling price of the business. So they got a loan for the whole thing. They didn't have to put any money out of pocket. They went in there and I was like, well, all right, well, like this business has been in place for forever. Like, why are you selling it for 12 times? Like what you bought it for? And they're like, oh, we just worked the business. Like there was... Yeah, you know, this is the third generation and they were just taking the cash out of the business as fast as they could. And when it finally ran out, they're like, what do we have left? We've got the assets of the business. So they sold it. And they're like, yeah, we just showed up. We called on customers that they just let go. Nobody called on anybody for the past like 12 years or whatever. And I was like, oh my God, if you guys can do this, I can do that. I was like, well, what is it that makes you different? And they're like, look, we just had, we're willing to take a little bit of a risk. And then we showed up and that was it. And I was like, wait, I can do all of these things. Like none of that is overly complicated. You know, and I'm sitting over here grinding it out 60, 65 hours a week doing like accounting work. And I was like, man, I'm in totally in the wrong spot. So it was, you know, similar to you, like you just kind of have these mind opening epiphanies where you're like, oh, that's not impossible. <laughs> yeah. And that's why it's good. They say you're a sum total of the five people that you have around you, but also it's just exposing yourself to people of what you mentioned. And they say one thing, you have this belief. 
and they have this belief. And you're like, well, if they have that belief there and then you start to put the two and two and then that's what you mentioned, the light bulb really goes off. And I think it's Ralph Waddle Emerson that says this is that once the mind is touched by a different idea, it can never go back to being the same. Yeah, and it was, I think my tenure as a sitting across the table as a CPA was very short from that point on. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah, like you, I picked up Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and I was like, oh, this is how you do it. Now, I will say, similar to you, I started in single families, and I think that the book really kind of points you in that direction. And you can find that you reach your limit very quickly, you know, as to how many, like the scalability of it is that's really the issue. It's hard to be a person running singles and doubles you know, and have a massive quantity of them and be efficient. I was still working at the time when I started. And I got to a point where I had to leave my job so I could do it full time. And then I reached my capacity. And were you self-managing or were you, was it third party? Some I was and some we weren't. But even when you have like a property manager on the property, all they do is just take that first phone call for you. Like if it's not like, hey, the doorknob needs to be tightened and we sent, you know, Billy out there and, you know, here's the $20 bill for it. You know, if it's like the toilet's leaking, the water heater's broken, like they just call you, right? And it becomes your problem. So it's not a, you know, like I think we've talked about this before too, is that when you get into the larger multifamily, you get economies of scale where the maintenance is built into the process, right? And it's not a like, okay, water heater's broken, right? And I'm going to start calling all the plumbers I know to see who can get out there within like a week, right? And then figure out how to make these people feel fine. I guess, let's talk about your transition from the singles into the multifamily. Yeah. So how it worked, took a step back, doing self-management of those 150 single families. And it was an absolute nightmare when it came to that. Because one, property management is its own business in itself. And then you've got acquiring an acquisition. So it was just too much at that time. So then, okay, we're looking into the future where we want to be. And then was looking at various models. And then that's when settled on apartments. And then was looking at the multifamily over 40 units. And then from there made the decision, okay, well, no longer going to do single family. So cut that off. And then from that point forward is, okay, now how do we start to find the deals? And then also educating, okay, what is the cap rate? How are these value? What is the NOI? and was taking the approach of actually going nurturing relationships with brokers. And this was about in 2017 where things were starting to heat up. They weren't where they were now, but is wasn't having much success with that. So took another step back and said, okay, well, why not go direct to the owner and look to beat the brokers to the punch and then decided to build that whole thing out. And the first deal was a 46 unit, which all started with just driving past the property. The parking lot looked like an alligator's back. It was very outdated. So picked up the phone and just asked the owner, would they be interested in selling? And then we moved it from there. There's a lot in that story, of course, but that's the general flow of that very first deal, which was a 46 unit. Well, I think most of the syndicators that I work with and GPs, you know, ask them what's the secret of their success. And it's like boots on the ground relationship with brokers. And you're taking a different tact and you're saying, look, I'm going to go right to the property owners, right? So this is like blocking and tackling 101, almost like wholesaling style where like get out, drive them, you know, start making contacts and go direct. I guess let's unpack that a little bit more. How do you find that working out for you? Like, why aren't these guys going to a broker if they're just ready to sell? So you have to find the right owner that one is motivated and they want to sell the property sooner rather than later. So that's in first and foremost. And then secondly, is that they may have some bad stigma. I wouldn't say necessarily 
entirely bad stigma, but they prefer to actually sell with someone direct and they don't want to list the property on the open market. So that's the second thing. And then the third is just building a relationship with the owner too, because oftentimes there are brokers in touch with them. But if you're able to really nurture that relationship and just not make it about the sale of the property, but the end goal, yes, is to sell that property, but there's things that you can go above and beyond to really create that relationship. Yeah, just from my experience, once it hits the market, it's just difficult to not only compete with local buyers, but now across the country and now international. So it's very competitive. Yeah. And in terms of the diligence and the processes and working through all that, like you're probably having to do all of that yourself and, and coach these owners through that. Are you finding that there's benefits there? Or is that like a real time suck? It is, but the ROI is there. Meaning that one of the properties, this was a 80 unit. This was in middle of 2018. I bought it for 3.35 million. 80 units of which minimally a broker would have been able to sell that and list it. They would have listed it for 3.8 and likely would have been able to sell it for, I would say if the price would have got bidded up to about 4 million. So there is the ROI from that, but I can tell you it is a lot of work, but as long as you have the right people on your team, that also does help because yeah, normally the broker would do all that as far as obtaining the financials, helping with building out a performance. Still, you would want to do your own performance. But in essence is you are that gap that I mentioned of, let's say $700,000. That's what I would believe is a good return on investment for all that work that was invested into that with not having the broker involved. And I guess what markets are you looking at? So primarily in the Midwest, because people are probably thinking is that, okay, how could he get that price per door? I'm in California and I could barely get a single family house That's for right. that much. <laughs> yeah. Or two single families. So primarily in Indianapolis. So I would say the Midwest. So in Kansas City, Ohio, and then also Kentucky. And then now out here in Houston, Texas, where they say everything's bigger. But one thing I would say out here in Texas is where I live is the toilet is the same size as the ones back home. So I don't know if I have a defective toilet when it comes to that and I need to get it replaced with a bigger one. Well, I guess what mistakes, you know, as we get back to kind of the limited partners, what mistakes do you see limited partners making when they're jumping into investments like this? I'd say the primary is just looking at the returns that a deal has and not so much the actual operators. So that's what I would say is first and foremost is that everything or an operator can make things look good on paper, but as far as the execution, that's what I would say is even more important. And the second mistake is not invest. This is a catch 22 when it comes to this, but I would say in today's market, it's even more important is investing with operators who have actually been are even more seasoned and who have been through an actual downturn. I myself, and I'll be transparent, have not been an operator through a downturn. So that's one thing I would say for limited partners when you're looking at these various deals, because I believe we're going to start to experience a downturn because real estate goes in cycles. So just protecting your downside and going with someone who has been able to be weather the storm through that. I think that finding the right operators message is really consistent across this, you know, all, all the interviews and all the conversations I had, but how would you recommend somebody go about finding the right operator? And what are your, you know, aside from, you know, especially in this market where yes, it's cyclical, we might be thinking we need to find somebody that's been through a cycle before, but what, what else should they be looking for? I'd say attending industry meetups or conferences 
and to where you can actually network with operators that are in the space. And then from there is what I found is there's the 80-20 principle where there's really, and now I believe it's actually more so shifted to 90-10, but just using 80-20 principle, there's always about 20% of operators that are actually doing 80% of the deals. So as you're going out there and networking is, you'll start to hear a common thread of people saying that, okay, well, we've got this person that's buying deals, or let's say you're having a conversation with the broker and they say, yeah, this person has bought, they're my go-to what is it buyer when deals are end up listing and I transact with them quite a bit. And then if you can, let's say, have a conversation with that broker, for instance, and then you can do your due diligence on that actual buyer and you see that they've been in the industry for 20, 30 years and they still have a good reputation. They're still in business. That's a good indication. They have been able to weather those storms. And then of course you can see about reaching out to people who have invested with them as well to get those further insights to see what their actual returns have been in performance. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question is returns and past returns. And how do you even judge that? Because it's easy to monkey around with numbers on a spreadsheet to make the returns oh, yeah. look better. And you financial know, think, engineering, you can basically yeah. just take Exactly what you said. Yeah. And I think that if you're a limited partner, I think you were alluding to this earlier too, is that if you're just shopping for returns, you know, the guy that's got the best returns, it's like, well, does he really, you know, like what's the secret sauce here? Like, is there something special? In, in some cases there is, right? And that is part of the niche is that they're going to do something that like nobody else has thought of that's going to like increase the returns. But there's also a lot Sometimes. of spreadsheet jockeying. Yeah, there's a lot of spreadsheet jockeying that can be done and like small tweaks to a cap rate or an exit cap rate or something like that can make a really big difference on the way the numbers look on a piece of paper. So what are your thoughts on how to mitigate some of that? That's what I would say exactly what you mentioned is looking at, okay, if cap rates are at a three and a half or 4% today and you're looking at their exit cap, and it's at, and I'm just using this as an example, and it's at a two and a half, three, then that's a good indication that, okay, maybe they're being a little bit too aggressive. And that's their conservative model versus their conservative model saying that cap rates are, let's say right now at a four, but they believe in several years down the road, they're a little bit more conservative on their conservative model, not their aggressive model, is that let's say it's at a four and a half or 5%, then that's a good indication. Okay, they're underwriting the deal from that. And then also is that, if they believe things are going to keep appreciating or if they don't have any money that is allocated towards reserves. And this was one of the mistakes I actually made. And this is something for limited partners to actually really look out for is that let's say it's a C-class property and it's a heavy value add. And I wouldn't necessarily say heavy value add, but it needs work. If there is not enough money that is needed to take care of those improvements and that is raised up front from the investors. That's usually a red flag when it comes to that because what ended up happening on that deal as those units turned didn't have enough cash and was attempting to take it out of cash flow to actually take care of those improvements. And it just did not work out that way. And this is one mistake I hear over and over from others and still ended up making that. So as an LP, if you're looking at the deal and there's not enough money to raise to improve all the units as they turn, that's normally a red flag, I would say. I think that's a really great point, right? So just to kind of reiterate for you guys out there that are listening, is that when you're putting a deal together and let's just say it's a value add, there's going to be a lot of turns. Let's just say it's $8,000 a unit. I'm just making something up. Exactly. Yes. 
there needs to be, you know, that much cash, you know, 8,000 times hundred units. I think that's 8 million bucks, right? Like that needs to be sitting aside ready for these renovations, like from the get go, right? Not hoping that like somewhere we're going to come up with it because the reality is that the cash flow for these units, especially if there's a preferred return are pretty tight, right? Like they're not engineered where these things are like, there's just all this excess cash flow is just sitting there on the side, ready to go. So if you were hoping, kind of there's a hope and a prayer that like there's not enough capital reserves out there ready to do this. Sorry. And by the way, when 8 million bucks is $800,000, I just (laughs) added a zero there. But if you think about that, like if there's not enough cash set aside for these renovations from the get-go in this, especially in this current market where, you know, debt and refinancing, like all of those things are very uncertain. It puts a lot of risk on execution of the project itself. And if there's not enough cash flow to actually do the work, it's a downward cycle. You're just going to go, you're going to spiral down because the increases in rent you can't get because you didn't renovate the units. And therefore like the cash flow that you thought you were going to get from the increase in the rents doesn't show up. And it just, it like gets worse. (laughs) It's a, what you said, a death spiral. Death spiral. That's right. Yeah. And then ended up having to sell that property because it just didn't make sense to hold on to it. And this is right during the time where the market was really starting to catch fire. So just think if we were at a different spot in the cycle, it would not have looked good from that. So ended up selling, got decent as far as the return to the investors. But then if it was a different part of the cycle, let's say it's a downturn, would not have been able to sell at the top, then would have had to weather through the storm, which that would have been a difficult period. So that's just one thing that ended up working out on that. But some people, depending on where they buy in the cycle, let's say today, that may not be the case. Yeah, I think that's a great point to watch out for. And the reason, and really, and again, I'm going to hammer on this a little bit harder too, is that it's not equity raising that's like the issue, right? There's money out there that wants to go to work. But when you put these deals together, there's usually, you know, let's call it 70, 75% of the deal is debt. And the rates on that debt is going up. The timelines on the debt, right? They could be bridge loans, which have a three-year period. Like, There's a lot of uncertainty in the debt markets, let's just think big bankers, are confused because they have no idea where this thing is going right now. So if you're putting your hopes and prayers in that, like, we'll be able to refinance or we'll be able to pull this money out of debt, like, that's not really a good plan. My belief overall is hope is just not where I want to depend on. I do believe in faith. But the whole hoping and keeping fingers crossed, I'd rather put myself in a situation to where I'm not in that situation to actually hope and bank on that. Because if it doesn't happen, then what is your downside? If you didn't protect your downside, that's where you'll really end up getting in trouble. Yeah. And that is what could start the death spiral. This didn't happen. So therefore, this piece of our pro forma didn't work out, which then means that the cash flow is lower, which means that this next piece didn't. And it just, it just, it can spiral out of control. And like your example was great is that even in a rising market, the business plan broke, right? Imagine what happens to a business plan, a, a market that it's adjusting, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> exactly. That's uncertain and exactly what you mentioned. Yes. Yeah. I think that like what you're saying is really important because you as a limited partner can look at these things and say, okay, what is the plan? The plan is we're going to do $800,000 worth of renovations. Okay, great. You're raising this and the sources of uses in cash. The cash goes to here, like it's the down payment. Okay, where's the $800,000? Like if it's not there, like it's just not there, right? And then you can ask the question, where's it coming from? And the reason why an operator on the GP side would not 
raise that money up front because if you do raise it up front, that does affect the returns to the investors. And that's why that deal was structured that way, but ended up biting us in the end. Hey, we actually needed that cash up front, so we shouldn't have bought the deal at all. Right. And I think like, just to clarify this real quick is that when you buy that, right, and you raise more money, like there's more returns that are owed back to the investors, right? So if you're just sitting on this cash, like that impacts the returns. So I think that there's, you know, your point is really valid. Is that like the reason you didn't raise the cash is because it wouldn't have worked and you shouldn't have bought the deal. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Hindsight 2020 for sure. But as we were going through it, we did what you had mentioned, did some financial or gymnastics in order to yep. make that work. And it didn't. Well, awesome. Well, Sterling, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate having you on the show. Is there anything else out there that you think that you'd like to communicate to make this episode complete? Yeah, I would say for everyone out there, as mentioned, when looking at GPs, I'm a firm believer is just, yes, there's the side where you can look at the returns, but I'm more of actually investing in the operator because an operator can turn a bad deal or okay deal to a good deal. But when you have a bad operator that has a good deal, they can figure out a way, unfortunately, through mismanagement or just don't have the track record experience to be able to weather a downturn, a good deal into a bad deal. So that's just one feedback I would really provide to those that are looking to invest in GPs as an LP. That's great. And how can my audience find you? Yeah. So you can find me at sterlingwhiteofficial.com. And then the same thing on Instagram is sterlingwhiteofficial. Any questions that you happen to have, go ahead and slide into the DM. And then when I mentioned sterlingwhite.com, interesting enough, a funeral home has that. <laughs> so yeah, people would have went there and be like, what is going on when I visit? He must like, own the funeral home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, and he does investing. Wait, what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Sterling, thank you for being on the show. I really enjoyed this conversation. I appreciate it, Jake. Thanks for having me on. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode, and I'd actually love for you to contribute to a future episode. If you have a question you'd like answered or a topic or a guest to bring on the show, please email me at jake at thelimitedpartner.com. Now I realize there's a lot of lingo that's thrown around on these shows, so I've created a cheat sheet for you with the top 26 terms that come up most often. Head on over to thelimitedpartner.com forward slash lingo for the list. Enjoy, and we'll see you next time.